0: Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. This is Philip Lance, your host for today's episode. I'm an analyst in training at the Psychoanalytic Center of California, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Adrian Harris about a book she edited with Stephen Kuchuk, The Legacy of Sander... Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. This is Philip Lance, your host for today's episode. I'm an analyst in training at the Psychoanalytic Center of California, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Adrian Harris about a book she edited with Stephen Kuchuk, The Legacy of Sander Ferenczi, From Ghost to Ancestor, published by Rutledge in 2015. Dr. Harris is a faculty member and supervisor at the New York University Postdoctoral Program in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis. She is also on the faculty and a training analyst at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. She serves on the editorial boards of Psychoanalytic Dialogues, Studies in Gender and Sexuality, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, and the Journal of American Psychoanalytic Association. She is a co-editor of Rutledge's Relational Perspectives book series, and I met her last month at the 50th Congress of the International Psychoanalytic Association in Buenos Aires, where she gave one of the keynote addresses. Welcome to the program, Dr. Harris.
1: Thank you, Philip. Um i'm really glad to be here and i uh, glad to talk always glad to talk about sander Ferency
0: about sander yeah so i learned a lot <laughs> about him reading this book and usually we begin um here at the new books in psychoanalysis just asking what what led you to putting this book project together
1: well i that's a long story so if it's okay i tell the long story um
0: yeah, take as much time as you would like
1: um it's so long ago that Lou Aaron and I, who were really initiated um, a lot of the American work on the modern American work on Sandro Ferenzi, that Lou and I can't remember exactly how we organized a conference on Ferenczi, which took place in May 1991. My bet is that Steve Mitchell was somewhere stirring the pot behind all this, and um I had never studied Ferenczi, I had never read his work, um, he wasn't taught in any analytic institutes, including he wouldn't have been taught uh, with any great intensity in the William Allenson White Institute, which was an analytic institute formed out of the work of Harry Stack Sullivan, uh, and um, people who had been really very influenced by, by Ferenczi, and who had studied with him and been in analysis with him, but he became such um, a persona non grata. He really was exiled, one might say beheaded, um, when he lost favor with Freud at the end um, of the 1920s. So when we did this conference in 1991, it was like discovering a new continent. It It was a really staggering experience and a number of Europeans who'd been really preserved Ferenczi's legacy, Hungarians and French analysts and people living in Switzerland. So a kind of community that had in a very underground way kept his work in, you know, in their hearts and in literally kept his work, began to surface in the 1990s. And they came to this conference that was in New York in 1991 and that produced the first book that Lou and I edited called The Legacy of Sandra Ferenzi. But I have to tell you the experience of sitting in the room and listening to people like André Henault and Judith Mazaros and Georges Hidash, who has died since then, talk about Ferenzi. It was the, the model, the metaphor I've always thought is the metaphor of You know, plate tectonics where the two continents used to be joined and then somehow they get separated? That's what I felt listening to the story of Ferenczi and his work and his ideas. I thought, I know who I am now. I know who my grandparents were. I know what the lineage is that made me the psychoanalyst that I became. I know a continent used to touch another one, and there used to be connections and links And they came to life again uh, in this 91 conference and then in the book. So Ferenczi was really saved by Hungarian analysts and European analysts. His work was preserved. Michael Bolland, who was really very close to Ferenczi and who went into exile in England um, around the Second World War, brought the manuscript that we now know as the clinical diary of Sandor Ferenczi. But Michael Ballant was afraid to have it translated um, in the 50s. He thought it was just too radical a document. So things were saved, but they also were saved in a context of not people not feeling very free to reintroduce his work into psychoanalysis and, until really the 90s. So this is a story with a... With loss and tragedy and a broken friendship um, and a figure who was really powerful and important and important to Freud and important to psychoanalysis who just goes off the grid uh, by the early 30s and it's half a century before he's really rediscovered so that's a long <laughs> a long peregrination a long walk. <laughs> Through what happened to Ferency and then his recovery, which has been incredibly important for people.
0: Yeah, but I like how you tell it. It really brings it to life, um, and 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 some emotional components of oh. tragedy and loss in there yes. in this whole story. So, 1991 was that first book, and that um, you know strikes me as a long time ago and yeah. a, around the era when Mitchell published the famous book on um, that kind of launched, I guess you'd say relational psychoanalysis there. So there must've been something in the air um, that the ground had been somehow prepared. There was a readiness in the zeitgeist, I guess, to, to rediscover Ferenczi.
1: I think that's a very important So, Like what, why did that work so well? What what was going on? And certainly Steve's own work um, in really crafting a relational approach, uh, an intersubjective or interpersonal uh, approach to psychoanalytic work, a two-person system, a two-person psychology, which was definitely Ferenczi. And, and also Ferenczi was very interested in countertransference and the subjectivity of the analyst. And he had a lot of, Interesting ideas, both clinical and theoretical, about how counter transference was important. ideas that appear in Winnicott. So that's what I mean by "you suddenly learned your history, because learning what Ferenzi was talking about in the 20s and even before, you could suddenly see, well, no wonder Winnicott felt really able to look at the activity of the analyst, the countertransference of the analyst, as a contribution to the clinical work, um, rather than just a projection from the, from the patient. So a lot of things were brewing, I would say, around um, being more interested in a two-person system. I think the other thing that's probably important is that um, really starting after the Vietnam era in, in the 1980s, there was a much more need to really look at the reality of trauma, both the trauma that could happen in childhood, which Ferenzi had written about in Confusion of Tongues, but also in war trauma. And I think that that, um, that dimension of what was going on in psychoanalysis was probably pretty important. Um, in in, a, in a edit, another edited book that I did with Steve Botticelli, which is called war, First Do No Harm, War Making and Resistance. We, look, we looked at it. We looked at the work of um, a French analyst named Francois d'Avoine and her husband, Jean-Max Godillier. And they write about war trauma, and they write about the pattern where during a war and in the immediate aftermath, everybody's very concerned with trauma, and then it disappears. So I think that in the post-Vietnam era, there was, you know, PTSD was in the DSM. There was a much different attention to what happens to people in combat and when they try to come home. So I think that that, the question of trauma, both as a childhood phenomena and also as a war phenomena, was probably part of the ground in which Ferenczi's work came to life. And grew in a second, you know, a kind of second planting in the 90s. Um, then later, I would say that the clinical diaries are, are translated into English. They're published. Um, his book on sexuality called Thalassa. that the big things begin to appear. Um, there are new translations of the freud ferenczi letters. So um, a lot starts to um, percolate internationally and certainly in the U.S.
0: Okay, so the first book was 1991, and I'm trying to do the math in my head, but the second book is 2015, so that's, uh, I don't know, several decades in there. Uh, why? So why um, Why another book on Ferenzi?
1: Um I think that the answer to that is that there, in this ensuing several decades, a lot of work went on. People published lots of different articles about Ferenczi. There was an international Sándor Ferenczi network that was formed. You know, within a, I would say, a decade after the ninety-one book, and there began to be subgroups um, in America. In Europe, in Italy, in France, in London, a, a number of people, both constellations of people and individuals who were really undertaking uh, a lot of work and thinking and using Ferenczi's uh, ideas. So it's not sort of radio silence for 20 years, but it's sort of the forms in which people did their work um, weren't so much in this edited uh, book Um but people were writing about Ferenczi. They were using his work. They were um, they were extending his ideas about technique. They were extending his ideas about uh, interjection and projection. Um, they were uh, there was a, a work of Jay Frankel that's in the second book. But but Jay had been really interested in a concept that Ferenczi is the first to develop, and it's in the Confusion of Tongues paper. And in that paper, he talks about what he comes to call identification with the aggressor. And that was really his concept, that one of the things that happens when somebody is kind of caught up in a scene or a relational configuration with a, in a sense, violent and traumatizing person, one interesting strategy is identification. You can be splitting, there can be dissociation, there can be many things. But another thing which he notices is that the, the traumatized person identifies with, their, with the perpetrator. We have a modern term for that, which is to call it the Stockholm Syndrome, in which people began to note that often if there were kidnappings or people were somehow put into the control of somebody else and in thrall or kidnapped, often a strange kind of identification took place. And for Ferenczi, this was something that he noticed in patients, in children, in all kinds of situations, as a way to manage sort of unspeakable anguish, by becoming the bad one, not just the victim. So that kind of work emerged from reading Ferenzi, but then it had a whole life of its own in journals and in teaching. And so I think a lot went on in the sort of two decades since, um, more than two decades since the um, first book came out. Um, one of the things that happened is that people began to do research on some of Fer- Ferenzi's patients, um, uh, Elizabeth Severn, most significantly, um, but Clara Thompson, who was a well-known American analyst in New York, has been identified as one of the patients that he writes about in the clinical diary, D um, D N and R N turns out to have been Elizabeth Severn. So. People began to do kind of historical work in the archives, trying to figure out who were these people, you know, what did they do, what did they take, what was it like being Ferenzi's patient. So a lot of research went on, a lot of, um, a lot of teaching. Uh, I would say Ferenzi was sort of brought into the canon or back into the canon. Um, his the let, the Freud Ferenczi correspondence was translated. That's in three volumes, and so I, I think it wasn't silent, but I think the forms that the scholarship and the work took varied enormously. And people, you know, taught in their local institutes, published in journals, you know, worked with Ferenczi's ideas, but um, in 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 a lot of different ways. So. That's
0: that's one thing I would uh-huh. say. So we're we're kind of talking about how ideas within the 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 field of psychoanalysis kind of unfold and develop and grow, and some of that happens through this natural sort of I guess internal processes of people writing and publishing and studying. But you earlier brought in a very interesting kind of um, factor from the outside: the Vietnam War. I, I kind of liked how you made that move in terms of how things that are happening in the world sometimes prepare um, psychoanalysis for, for new things to happen and change. So maybe that's a good way into – you You wrote one of the chapters. Um, the book is divided into kind of three sections, mm-hmm. context, history, and then my favorite section, the end on theory and what was it, technique, I guess. Maybe you could just say just a teensy bit about the the, the different sections, but then also um, tell us about your uh your chapter on war neuroses
1: okay so let me tell you how the book was organized we um in in talking about context we picked three very um important seminal writers on phrenzy and had them write about their way of working with Ferenczi's ideas and texts. And the first is Judith Mazaros. And Judith Mazaros, who's in Budapest, is absolutely one of the key figures who really saved Ferenczi's materials. Um, She has spearheaded um, a very successful effort in Budapest to buy an apartment within the house that Ferenczi lived in, which is now a study center devoted to Ferenczi. And she has also written a lot about the Hungarian Psychoanalytic uh, Association and its really very tragic fate during the 20th century. And so, um, and she's very good at contextualizing Ferenczi both in the context of his institution, in the context of kind of European thought in the late 19th century. Uh, the importance of spiritism, uh, the kind of eclectic world that Ferenczi lived in. So she, her chapter sets a kind of socio-historical context for Ferenczi's development. And then, um, in a sense, uh, charts um, the, the difficulties, partly the difficulties of maintaining Ferenczi, um, within a Hungarian perspective, is that the Hungarian Institute was, was really, uh, between Hitler and Stalin, um, enormously damaged. Um, about a third of the members of the Institute um, during the Second World War were lost in concentration camps. Some, maybe third, maybe um, managed to, be, um, to emigrate either to England or to the U.S., like Michael Bolland, who went to London, And about a third lived through the war, but with a completely broken psychoanalytic structure and institution. So she's, her chapter is really about trying to locate Ferenczi within theoretical and literary and philosophic and social background. Carlo Bonomi has done a wonderful job of scholarship of looking at Freud and Ferenczi in their letters, in their interactions, um, as they're working out, and as Freud is working out things around sexuality, things around mind, bone projection. So he's very much located within Freud and Ferenczi's time of being very close to each other, which is from about 1910 to about 1925, when they were really seriously involved in doing very collegial things, and Ferenczi was writing papers that Freud loved. At the end of his life, he was writing papers that Freud didn't love, but Bonomi really captures the intensity of the Freud-Ferenczi relationship. And then André Hainal was another crucial figure, a Hungarian who lives in Switzerland, who really thinks that the most serious problem between Freud and Ferenczi wasn't trauma, but technique. And that Freud, Ferenczi rather, was very experimental about technique, finally doing something he called mutual analysis. And so Hainal is the figure who, in Steve Kuchek, in my opinion, really has the whole history of Ferenzi's technical experiments very, very well understood. So that um, was the sort of the context, and and then the history is a lot devoted to um, people like um, William Brennan and Kit Fortune and Arnold Rackman and Peter Rudnitsky who were and, and Lou Aaron and, and Karen Starr, who were really looking at the particular patients that that Ferenzi worked with. Um, and sort of understanding his clinical method and his clinical approach uh, more more closely. Then the last section has a bunch of different articles, and it's much more about the sort of theory and technique, and what are the clinical applications, and sort of different topics that Ferenzi was interested in. Um, so that's how we sort of conceptualize the book. And I I, I wrote a, a paper on. Um, Paper that Ferenczi wrote in 1917 on war neuroses, and I am—I think a lot because of Ferenczi, but not only Ferenczi. I am very interested in the analysts around the First World War, because I think, in just the way Vietnam was incredibly transformative for Americans, I think the First World War was absolutely life-changing for any psychoanalyst or psychiatrist who went through it, either as a soldier or as a psychiatrist. So if you think of Wilfred Bion having been in the tanks throughout the war, um, Ferenzi ran a psychiatric hospital outside of Budapest. Um, there's Simmel. There's Wilhelm Reich, who was, saw a lot of active service in the Italian front. And there's Victor Tausk, who's a very tragic figure, um, uh, who kills himself actually in about 1919 and um, certainly was a war, a traumatized um, uh, war uh, veteran and, and psychiatrist also. So I think that that war is very um, crucial and that it changed any psychoanalyst that really encountered it. And the exception to that is Freud, who writes very little about that war it keeps a kind of almost anthropological ethnographer's distance from it. There's one place where he's writing about the treatment of war trauma, shock treatment after the war in an appendix to a book on psychoanalysis and war neuroses. But for the most part, he although he had three children at three boys at the front, he doesn't I don't think he was transformed by it in the way these other men were so <clears throat> i I wanted to look at Ferenzi's paper on more neurosis and to see um how um how he was looking at what he was looking at what he was finding and it's a very personal paper that he writes, and you you kind of feels he feels like he's taken you by the hand and walked you through the hospital and look at this, look at that, and he's looking at men's bodies. And seeing that shattered minds um, often were sort of shattered bodies as well—not just shattered by injury, but shattered psychologically. So uh, I think that we there's a lot we know about disturbance and trauma and psychosis that I think we learned in the wake of the First World War, and I think Ferenczi's contribution was a very a very significant one. So that's what. Mm-hmm. I, my sort of got me kind of interested in writing that particular chapter,
0: Mhm, and so it's let's kind of go to the bigger picture of um what what the importance of forensic is sort of for contemporary psychoanalysis and um I guess the the books sort of create an argument for how he's the ancestor of contemporary psychoanalysis. Although it occurred to me he could be his his impact could be even considered more broadly if we think that wasn't he Melanie Klein's first analyst yes. and maybe we could think of yes. the direction she went in as and, and mm-hmm. in, into object relations as being sort of because of his influence on her, would that be accurate? I, I
1: think it, it it would be it's always difficult to um to actually f- figure these things out because where Kleinian theory goes is to um, a view of, of transference and countertransference that's mostly really organized through thinking about projection, the projection of the patient onto the analyst. And so projective identification, which is one of her most significant um, developments and, and, and concepts, is I think it's 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 it doesn't include the projective identification of the analyst or the contribution of the analyst, the two person. Mm-hmm. So I think
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh whereas I think in Winnicott it really is there isn't more of an intersubjective um uh, dimension to his thinking. So in that sense, you know, Ferenzi certainly would have been um influencing uh, a lot of ideas about early development. You know, he was quite interested in, in child development. He has a really, really amazing paper called The Unwelcome Child and the Death Instinct. And he is a very, it's a paper with a very chilling sentence in which he says at some point, the unwelcome child dies easily and willingly. And so he was really talking about the degree to which early disturbances in parent-child life um, could be very traumatic. So I would put him more in the lineage that leads to Bowlby and Winnicott um, and attachment uh, and more about the interplay of love and hate um, and more about the interplay of the analyst subjectivity um as of use to the patient. Whether you tell it's not really about disclosure, but how does the analyst's understanding of what is being stirred up in him or her, how can it be helpful mm-hmm. to the patient? And that mm-hmm. that question um interested him. And I don't think that's a question that engages Plinyans.
0: Engagement mm-hmm.
1: Clyde herself, and it hasn't really been very much a part of post-modern you know, modern, contemporary
0: Hmm. Well, that's actually a good segue into another question I had. One of my favorite chapters was the one by Stephen Kuchuk, who wrote on The Analyst's Desire um, are, uh, and Erotic Counter-Transference. And he um, wrote just a really interesting kind of story about – his experience as a gay male analyst with heterosexual male patients and the way that the erotic countertransference there, um, as he argues, really, um, played in a, a key part in what was productive and useful about the analysis. And, um, you know, so my takeaway from the chapter kind of was that oh, every heterosexual male patient should be so lucky to have a gay male analyst. Kind of was my humorous takeaway, and I wonder, do you have any thoughts about love in the consulting room and desire, and and what that has to do with forensic?
1: Well, <clears throat> I think a, a great deal, um, and I think that this topic of um, erotic countertransference is um, it was very prominent at the Congress in Buenos Aires. Um, There was a whole panel, um, Andrea Salenza, Avi Sakutapoulou, Julie Levitt from from Pink, really talking about the whole question of how do you conceptualize the analyst's erotic attachment um, to the patient without anybody saying you conceptualize it and therefore it's okay to act on it. Nobody was saying that, but they were certainly, um, I would say, from a very forensic perspective, they were talking about the inevitability of that kind of intense feeling as mutative in treatments. Sometimes it's a huge problem to handle, but um, it is also something potentially productive. Um, Harold Searles talks about that as well, and Searles is a very interesting figure because somehow he does not get expelled from the psychoanalytic canon, although he would say in print that he thought that in a certain way, very ill patients didn't really get better until the analyst could sort of imagine loving them or really feel love for them. And he meant erotic love, not just you know, compassion or empathy. So I think the idea that the analyst's feeling states are mutative for the treatment it does come from Ferenczi it's what made freud very very anxious and it's why when he wrote the confusion of tongues paper ferenczi he wanted to talk to freud about it and freud wanted him not to read it at the congress in 1931 or 32 and he did And Freud refused to shake hands with him. And when Ferenczi wrote about it afterwards, he said he felt that he was, that Freud was killing him, that he was really not going to survive this. And he doesn't survive very long, actually, after that kind of catastrophe. So this was a scary project, the idea of the analyst's subjectivity, including the erotic attachment. But I think it's part of what we have to talk about.
0: Then how do we reconcile this idea about the analyst's love, the cure by love, and the the anal- the real relationship, I guess you'd say, with the analyst and the more what I think of in contemporary psychoanalysis, the intersubjective side, which can be sometimes seen as more an impersonal kind of analysis of maybe of l- l- how language is being used, semiotics, yeah. Um, yeah. and there seem like two. Kind of polar opposite uh-huh. kind of ways of
1: mm-hmm. you know yeah.
0: Do you have thoughts about that? Well,
1: um, it's interesting. I'm reading a book by Lewis Kirschner now uh, on the origins, or, or just he's talking about intersubjectivity and semiotics in psychoanalysis. I think it is possible to reinvigorate thinking about semiotics and discourse by sort of thinking about the body and its contribution to discourse so that language doesn't just become some kind of disembodied thing, but actually is a bodily process. And I think we're having a lot of interesting writing or reading a lot of interesting things about um, rather than just thinking of symbolic or non-symbolic, all these layers of unconscious phenomena, um, things that are somatic and affective and, you know, not quite symbolized, but nonetheless registered. And I think Ferenzi's focus on um, the nonverbal, the primitive, the archaic, um, and the archaic body um, is is part of, of that um, that tradition and those influences. And it it makes psychoanalysis much harder because, um, in a sense, you have to notice what you're feeling. You have to notice an erotic attachment, um, you have to notice your sadism, you have to notice all kinds of things. What you do about it at any given case is highly variable for some people they might share it for others they might never, um, but they understand that it 's part of the of the process you know there 's a very interesting i don 't know that she much talks about phary but there 's a um, Israeli analyst uh, or a shell is her name who writes about falling asleep in the session and what it came from So, sort of in her in the patient, in the treatment so you know I think once you open this up it's never going to be just about words. It's always going to include the body the affect states, the history um, and how do you handle it? Um, how do you, you know, when things get difficult, how do you get help from colleagues? How do you, so it's not about, there's no limits to action in any of this new work. There are all the limits to action. Mm-hmm. But, but, you, but if there's an experience, you have to be able to understand it and wonder, mm-hmm. how could it be helpful? How could it be mutated? Mm-hmm. So I think this is just one of I'm our glad. most important topics and one of the most difficult ones for, for new, for young uh-huh. analysts, <laughs> old analysts.
0: Yeah. Difficult. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the book by Kirshner. I forget his first name. Lewis, um, Lewis Kirshner. Larry? Lewis. No. Lewis Kirshner. Yeah. Because um, intersubjectivity in psychoanalysis, because I just read it and um he doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to contact him, see if he wants to talk about that book. Cause I thought it was r- t- r- terrific.
1: Yeah, I did too.
0: It's a really good some, somewhat difficult. That's what I picked up on for, for younger analysts, um, like me. But, um, but wow, there's a lot of good stuff in there. But also you mentioned again, you're, um, one of the panels at the IPA Congress. And so I wanted to, um, Ask you about the keynote address you gave there because um, it probably has something to do with frenzy. Um it was uh the Congress's theme was intimacy, and your paper, the tank in the bedroom um bedroom being a place of intimacy uh, i i think approached the topic differently than a lot of what I heard at the congress which which i guess was maybe more traditional kind of ways of looking at the the question. Um, and the second sentence of the keynote address you gave was what I most want to convey today is that sexuality, gendered subjectivity and intimacy are not simply personal and self-contained, but always invaded by and cohabitating with forces of power and history, whether violent or seductive or dominating. Um, that's a lot for people who aren't familiar with um the literature of more uh, of inner subjectivity and contemporary kind of critical ways of looking at things. Um but um but it's a beautiful sentence and I, I just wondered what what you could want to say about that in terms of and any any forensic um connections there?
1: Well, I would say that the, that who I have become as a psychoanalyst where I could write that sentence would not have been possible without an encounter with Ferenczi, who was um, um, not only a psychoanalyst, he was an intellectual, he was a progressive person, he was a left-wing person, he was somebody for whom the social and the intrapsychic were all intermingled, and I think, um, you know, I I'm also come out of that era of 70s feminism and, um, and the Vietnam and the anti-war movement. And so I think in my generation and my kind of coterie of analysts, we assume that the, the political is personal um, and it's also theoretical and, um, and that uh, you, you always have to be thinking what social power What regulatory apparatus is being expressed through our institutes, through our ways of teaching, through our ways of working, through our theories. And so for me, intimacy was a chance to talk about something very close in, very um, private, but to sort of say, but there's the privacy is an illusion. We are, we are always infused by all kinds of historical. Forces, and I, I think that um, you know, Ferenczi um, enacted that through the way he he used sort of the clinic as a two-person situation. Um, it's not just a person with drives and individuality, but there's always an interaction from you know from the beginning and always. So I, I think I couldn't have written that kind of paper without. Uh-huh. Some, you know, historic rootedness in Ferenczi's ideas,
0: and um, this question's a little more sort of my own sort of little personal question I wanted to ask. But you know, the next congress in two years is in London, and I the theme is either femininity or the feminine, and um, so since this is the first congress that I'd ever ever been to, and I thought maybe the next one in two years. As a candidate, um, they have a candidates organization that's Ipso, a part sure. of the Congress yeah. called, yes, IPSO. And um, so candidates write papers and submit them. And um, so it made me think, oh, I'm talking to Adrian. Harris, a perfect person to sort of ask. And aren't you somewhat involved in helping people become writers, oh, helping definitely. analysts learn how to write? Definitely,
1: definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So maybe maybe you should uh, do a group for some of us about <laughs> How to uh, you know how to write a paper for the next Congress, but what any thoughts about um, what what we might want to be thinking about in, um, uh, around the topic of the feminine or well, Ferenzian? You know,
1: it is the the, it, the topic is the feminine, which is quite ambiguous. So it's in a certain way, intimacy was an ambiguous term as well. And people took it in different directions. Uh, it may be that they took it in more conventional directions, but one didn't need to. And I think the same might be said for the feminine, which is maybe one of the kinds of projects would be to contest that term. Because in a certain way, I, I, I looked at intimacy in relation to, I was tasked with talking about intimacy in relation to gender and sexuality. And I added social violence to that list. And I, in a sense, changed the terms uh, of what I wanted to talk about by, by thinking of intimacy as always both social and interpsychic. So that would be sort of interesting to think about in, in the feminine. Um, uh, what would, you know, when you think about that term, how is it useful to you? How is it not mm-hmm. useful to you? What, what gets in your way, what gets in our way around that term? And, uh, uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think it's. Um, I have actually been thinking that I might like to write something about misogyny. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think mm. I don't know quite how it's going to be. You know, it will depend who they get to do the plenaries that will shape something of the sort of ideology of the of the Congress um, and you know the program committee that puts it together. You know, has some role in what what they're looking for, what and who they invite to do things. But I think, you know, I think it's a great opportunity, IpsO, to um, to do something and to um, I also, which should should tell you that there is um, a conference on from the Ferenzi International Sandor Ferenzi Network, um, which is going to be in Florence. Um, and if you went on a website. Sandor Ferenczi network or org. you would find a website that has a conference that's going to be next may That's going to be devoted to Ferenzi's work and um you know you, we have a, we have actually a panel we're putting together that's going to be just candidates so we're encouraging people to write and to
0: uh-huh. <laughs>
1: so okay um
0: yeah that was helpful um I need to sit down and really think about what femininity needs mean really means to me and why it's just just kind of um, frightening and provocative, you know, and and for all the men who are beginning, you know, going to that conference and having to sort of be forced to sort of give presentations and write about the feminine, that's going to be tricky, uh, (laughs) maybe somehow, but um, good (laughs) for all of us. Um, So let's see, our time's winding down. What are you working on? Another projects are with you maybe it's plural projects or anything in particular
1: well i'm um i'm actually trying to finish a book of my own essays in which the plenary the tag in the bedroom is going to be one of them and i've been writing about winnicott and farenzy will be um sort of worked through uh the uh many of the different chapters and i i'm also doing a paper on Freud's writing about around the first world war and in in that book in that sorry in that essay Ferenczi is definitely a countervoice to the way Freud talks about war trauma so I, I i keep him close the other thing i thought about for the congress on the feminine is um, not many people write about Ferenczi's book on Uh, sexuality specifically, and genitality. And it's called the Lhasa. And Mm. it's got a lot to do with the feminine, the mother, the regressed. So it's kind of interesting.
0: Hmm. Okay, well, we're out of time. um, But I just wanted to really thank you for taking the time to tell us about this book. Thank Thank you 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 so so much. much.
1: Thanks very, very much.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Adrian Harris about her book, The Legacy of Sander Ferenzi From Ghost to Ancestor, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis webcast. Be sure to subscribe to our webcast and feel free to post your comments and questions on the blog site.